Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. But if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two or three um, if, uh, excuse me, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Children, I have a question for you this morning. What happens when somebody does something that you don't like? They take a toy or they take a turn when it was supposed to be your turn, or maybe they call you a mean name. You have options of what you can do, right? You can go and tell somebody about it. Sometimes that's called tattling. You have options. Maybe you can fight back, and maybe you're a little bit bigger than the other kid. That's another option too. Again, not one that I'm going to recommend this morning. But Jesus this morning teaches us how we should handle these things. Now, adults, I'm going to let you in on the secret. Sometimes this kind of thing happens to us too, right? Uh, People take toys that we wanted, or it's our turn, and maybe in driving, and we should have had that turn, and someone else cuts us off, or all kinds of different things happen, and, and how should we handle these things in life? Well, I think one of the interesting things that we learn both in the family and in the church is that so much of our life consists of very small things. It's not always the big things that are always happening around us. Very often we are dealing day in and day out with exceedingly small things. And it's the small things that make all the difference. How do you respond when your toy is taken? How do you respond when someone else takes your turn? How do you respond in those situations? Well, you can go and gossip about it tattle to other people about it. But Jesus in this passage gives us profound wisdom. Wisdom that is so simple and direct and yet in practice so difficult to keep, which is why we need this passage so much. We're going to study this passage so much. As we do so, I want us to be thinking about two big ideas that are just floating everywhere in this passage. They don't always come to the surface. They're always immediately below or above it or behind it or around it. But I want us to think of two concepts as we come into this passage about relational reconciliation in the church, in life. And I want us to think about these two things. First of all, love for our wandering brothers and sisters, for those who are in sin, love, characterized by love and our interactions with them. And second, the glory of Jesus' kingdom, particularly how Jesus' kingdom shines through all of these very small interactions in day-to-day life as we get bumped and bruised along the way as things go not quite how we want them to go. Our big idea this morning is this, that Jesus administers His kingdom through the ministry of His church. Jesus administers His kingdom 
through the ministry of His church. Now, we'll look at this in three points. The first point, which, by the way, it's going to be the longest. Don't worry, the other two are not as long as we're going through this. But the first point is going to deal with that issue of love. Number one, loving back a brother, loving back a brother. And then the second and third points are going to deal with that second issue I mentioned, that of Jesus' kingdom. So in the second point, we're going to look at the authority of King Jesus. And the third point, the presence of King Jesus, the authority of King Jesus and the presence of Jesus. But we'll start off with that first point, loving back a brother in verses 15 through 17. Now, as we start our study of this passage, it's so important, and it's been several weeks since we've been in the Gospel of Matthew, to remember where exactly we are. I, I want to just, I, I know I do this, I hope it's helpful, uh, but look right up the page at the verse before that. Jesus says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus just talked about the love of God the Father to pursue wandering, straying little ones, the, the least of these, not only children, but also those who are not highly thought of in the, in the estimation of our world. And Jesus says that His Father doesn't want any of these to perish. And what's getting, what that's getting at is the love of God which sent the Father to send the Son into the world in order for Jesus Christ to come into this world to die for His people, to reclaim sinners. And if you remember the parable that Jesus told in that passage, it was about the shepherd who even, he has a hundred sheep, and even though 99 are safe, he will leave the 99 on a mountain in order to pursue the one wandering, errant, straying, sinning sheep. Now, the reason that's important for the context today is the idea is this, that if our Heavenly Father so loves His children, us, then also as the children of our Heavenly Father, who should be filled with the love of our Heavenly Father, we should likewise, in the same way, love our fellow believers so much to pursue them and call them back when they are straying. It's not just Jesus who goes and leaves the 99 to go to pursue one. This also needs to characterize our actions as children who resemble our Father in heaven. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably heard people talk about the Matthew 18 reconciliation passage, the steps of reconciliation laid out in Matthew 18. But if you're not familiar with it, or if you are, and it's just a good time for a refresher, this passage is fundamental for outlining the Christian vision for how to live in community, for how to live in the church, for how to live with all of the relationships we have where people get bumped and bruised and toys get taken and turns get usurped and all of this kind of thing happens. How do we deal with those things? Well, in verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you. In this first step, Jesus is going to say that we need to go to our brother alone, but it starts with identifying the condition in which that's supposed to happen. Jesus is talking about serious sin here. He's not talking about weakness or frailty. He's not talking about being the kind of busybody that is always going around telling other people their faults. What's wrong with them? I want to help you. Let me tell you what's wrong with you. It's important then to differentiate between the kind of deep introspective searching of our own sin in our own souls, on the one hand, and the critical judgmental scrutiny of other people and their sins. We are called to search deep in our souls. We're called to pray to the Lord, search me and know me, O God, and tell me if there be any hidden fault within me. 
We're supposed to search out those things. The Holy Spirit finds those things in our lives. We are not to play the role of the Holy Spirit in other people's lives. I think you've got something under the surface. I'd like to fix it for you. You're not the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is telling us here that there are times where we are to go to our brother and tell them the fault when it is a big deal, serious sins. In other cases, love covers a multitude of sins, is what Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Jesus is talking about serious sins. Many of these things that irk us, irritate us, maybe should just be covered over by love as we live to bear with one another under love. But on the other spectrum, I do want to just briefly say that at the other end of the spectrum, Jesus is not talking about abusive crimes. There are sins that are not simply sins against one another, but these are abusive crimes. And the Bible says that the state is given the sword to punish offenders of crimes, including abusive crimes. Our denomination published a report on domestic abuse and sexual assault. I'd commend it to your reading. Um, One of the things they say in that report is that in case of abusive crimes, Romans 13 takes precedence, which talks about the right of the state to handle those sorts of things. Now, that's not the main focus of our text today, but I do want to mention it because it's important to say. So what happens in this first step? Go to your brother alone, Jesus says. Go and tell him. So if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Now, the idea of telling him his fault is not to grill him, to nail him against a wall for what he has done. It's the idea of being actually somewhat gentle and circumspect. In terms of circumspect, you may remember earlier Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, said that if you are going to go to your brother to help him remove a speck from his eye, you better realize that you have a log in your own eye, and you need to work on removing the log from your own eye so that you can see clearly to help your brother with his speck. Now, that doesn't mean we all just ignore everything else that's going on around us. The point of removing the log from our eye, of doing deep introspective work in our own souls, why am I doing this? Is it with right motives or wrong motives? The point of doing this is so that we can help the brother with a speck in his eye. It does lead to that, but the point is we just don't go around blind to our own faults and telling everybody else about what is wrong with them. We're supposed to go being gentle and circumspect to tell him his fault, and it's to do this alone, between you and him alone. Um, Some of the commentaries mention there's actually an interesting German expression uh, to have a conversation under four eyes. Not four eyes like I have with glasses, but under four eyes, your eyes and the eyes of the other person. That's the only people who see this situation, the only eyes who are clued into this situation, just four of them, yours and the other parties. You go to them alone. The idea, as we're going to see here, as people point out, is that this is structured to keep as few people involved at every step of the process as possible. Now, that is going to expand along the way, but the idea is not to start and going around gossiping and telling people, and you know this person did this, what do you think about that? The point is to go to the person and tell them their fault alone. To be very candid, I think some of the worst mistakes that I've made in my life in a ministry have been trying to address the offender on behalf of someone else. This happens a lot as a pastor. Someone will come and tell me something, and to try to then go and pastor it, fix it, carrying the water from one person to another person. I think some of the worst things that I have done in life and in a ministry have been trying to do that. If you come to me and ask me, I need help with this other person, 
one of the very first things I'm going to say is, I will go with you to this person. We might be missing the first step, but let's have a direct conversation with the person instead of trying to do this where we're having a conversation over there and the other person is, is not clued into that conversation. The principle here is go to your brother and what Jesus says is to do it alone. Why? Because you don't necessarily know what exactly happened. You may think you know the story, but you don't. You may think you know the motivations in someone's heart, but you may not. So you go and you lay this out before the other person. And you're circumspect. Have I missed something? Help me out. Fill in the rest of the story. What am I missing? And you talk to your brother trying to win your brother back. Because the whole point of this in verse 15, Jesus says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The word for gained is like uh, to, 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 to gain money or to win a contest. You win your brother back. It's this idea that gets back at that shepherd's delight. Remember? Uh, that's what uh, R.T. France says about this passage. It gets back at the shepherd's delight. In verse 13, right above the page, if he finds that lost sheep, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. There's a special privilege in winning a brother back because you have the courage by God's grace and the clarity of vision to go and gently, circumspectly, respectfully go and tell this person, I think you're in sin here, and I love you too much to leave you there. What am I missing, or how can I help? Well, the next step is in verse 16. If that fails, Jesus says next, you need to take witnesses toward this. So he says in verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, what's the point of these witnesses? Why are we now bringing more people into this conversation? John Calvin had a helpful comment in his commentary on this passage where he distinguished between denial of sin and evasion of sin. I thought it was really helpful. He says, now, if you're dealing with someone who outright denies sin, yes, I did that. No, that isn't sin. Leave me alone. A couple of the witnesses probably want help. We probably have to keep moving our way down the steps that Jesus is going to lay out. But on the other hand, there are sometimes situations where people try to evade sin. And they're maybe wishy-washy about whether it was really a sin. They try to, you know, hem and haw about it. They try to give excuses. And there's not really a full sense of the nature of the sin. And what Jesus sa is saying, and what, what Calvin is pointing out, is that when you bring other witnesses, one of the things that's going to happen is this person is going to realize this is actually a big deal. I can't just wait for this to go away. I can't just hope this is just going to vanish or I can bury it somewhere and it won't bother me anymore. This person loves me and I'm driven crazy by it because I'm on the hot seat right now, but this person loves me enough not just to confront me, but to bring other people who are trying to shepherd me back to repentance and faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. They may not like it, but what this does is to help people to avoid evasion where other people are helping to bring them to a sense of sin. The goal is fundamentally for these witnesses, therefore, first of all, to win back this brother. If they haven't listened to you alone, to bring other people in order that they may win back this brother. But there's another reason for this that Jesus is getting at. And second of all, it's to bear witness if this offender still does not repent. He says in verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge listen, that charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Do you hear the courtroom language there? Charges? 
evidence, witnesses. There are times where this progresses to a place where there needs to be formal charges brought in a judicial setting where evidence is brought forth, where witnesses give testimony about what happens to determine whether someone has actually sinned and what should be done about it. But we're not to that point yet. These witnesses, however, are there, first of all, to win back the brother, but second of all, that if this person still doesn't repent, now there are two or three witnesses who can say that after multiple confrontations, this person has still not repented. Now again, hopefully it works for maybe the evaders of sin, but for the denial of sin, that's where we have to move on to the next step. Before we get to that, I want to point out that the fact that repentance is important here, we shouldn't miss. The initial sin is actually not the biggest issue in all of this. The real, the biggest issue in this uh, offender's life is their repentance or lack thereof. Jesus promises there can be forgiveness of sins both with God and with each other, but there has to be real repentance. There has to be repentance in order to turn to Jesus Christ in faith to receive that forgiveness from God. So uh, Jesus then is giving us a legal and a technical process, and he's even showing us the, the places where witnesses come in and how this is all going to work. But do you see how this is also a social process more than that? We could just sort of bring charges that anytime anything came up in any one of your lives, we haul you before the session and, and, and put on a trial. But do you notice how Jesus is talking about how the church is supposed to work as a community, as a people, as a social process where, where, where Jesus is wanting people, sinners, to be shepherded by other people who are also fellow sinners struggling along in the way, trying to follow Jesus? It might begin with a trial with those witnesses and the evidence and the charges and the judgments. But this begins with ordinary Christians coming alongside other ordinary Christians. That's so important. You have a vital role as a congregation in the discipline, the discipleship that Jesus is calling his church to do. Well, the third step happens at the beginning of verse 17. Uh, Jesus says, um, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So after this, what what should you do? If you've gone to the person and you've had a couple other witnesses, should you stand up on a Sunday morning and shout out the things that someone else has done during a worship service? Is that how to tell it to the church? Thankfully, no, that's that's not how we do that. Um, in, In Scripture, the word church has a lot of different meanings. Sometimes it talks about the invisible spiritual church of all the elect throughout all the ages, Old Testament and New Testament, as one company of people, as one church. Sometimes the word church means that. Sometimes it refers to a single local church, like Harvest Community Church. It's used in that sort of a sense. Sometimes it's talking about a group of churches in a particular region, the church in Jerusalem or the church somewhere else. But in the Old Testament, particularly when you dealt with discipline, the word church appeared in the Old Testament as well. It was often translated as the word assembly. But whenever that word was used, it typically referred to the, to the elders who would preside over judicial cases. For example, in, verse, in Deuteronomy 31, verse 28, Moses says this to the people. He's about to die. He's passing over the authority that he exercised largely independently to the elders. And he says this, Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. Now, two verses later, in Deuteronomy 31, verse 30, we read this, Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly. There's that word for church 
of Israel. So who's the church in that case when Moses is laying out essentially an accusation against the people of Israel about how they will not be able to persevere in their faithfulness before the Lord? What's the elders and the officers of the people who were then supposed to preside over disciplinary cases? The idea of saying, telling it to the church, and then as Presbyterians, we believe this refers to the courts of the church. For example, the elders who are meeting together as the session of the church, or if there's an appeal, or for some cases that goes to the presbytery, the region of churches represented by the ruling elders from this congregation and the the pastors, the teaching elders, gathering together to oversee certain matters, or failing that, if there's still an appeal that goes all the way to the general assembly of our church, again, it's still the elders of the church. The reason we think that this verse, tell it to the church, refers to making a formal charge before the elders of a church is that the church is understood as a body. And the scriptures teach us that different parts of the body perform different functions. Not everyone is a hand, not everyone is an eye, not everyone is an ear. Each of those organs and limbs do something on behalf of the whole body, but something that the rest of the body doesn't do. The stomach does not pick up things like your hand does. Your hand does not digest your food. Everything does its own individual part. And in terms of judicial church discipline cases, to tell it to the church means that at some point, if you have dealt with someone individually, they still not listen. You've brought witnesses and they still not listen. There comes a point where you must bring a formal charge to the session against someone else. Now, again, one of the first things we'll ask is if you've done all the preceding steps that lead up to that. But there comes to that point. That's not you trying to punish somebody. That's you loving someone so much that you want the church of Jesus Christ, whose authority is exercised in the elders of the church, to work with that person, to shepherd that person, even if necessary, through formal church discipline. Because ultimately, sometimes these cases come to what Jesus talks about in the last part of verse 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, if he doesn't respond to the judicial process of the courts of the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, as a Gentile and a tax collector. This fourth step is ultimately the unrepentant are excommunicated. Excommunication is not on the basis of necessarily what the initial sin was. It is because someone, whatever sin happened along the way, refuses to repent of that sin. And so to treat someone as a Gentile or a tax collector is to treat them as cut off from the church. Now, it's hard to think about what this might be. I want to give you an illustration. This is the best way I can illustrate this. I want you to think if you have a sibling, a brother or a sister. I want you to imagine, maybe children, you have to think of if you're older, but if, imagine a brother or a sister who eventually or is married, whose uh, spouse adulterously leaves that person, leaves your brother or your sister. Now, before that happened, you may have personally liked that spouse quite a bit your brother or your sister's spouse quite a bit. But beyond that point, you can't just hang out anymore. You can't have this ongoing, pleasant, personal relationship. Unless you are actually trying to confront the person, what are you doing? You need to repent of this. You need to come back. Those are the kinds of conversations that happen with people who have chosen their sin over Christ and His church. To fail to take this final step would demean the glory of Christ. It would mean that in the church, sin really didn't matter. All that we talk about, all that the Bible says, really isn't that important. Jesus' holiness isn't that important. 
And it would also diminish the heinousness of sin and the danger of sin. You know, sin is like cancer. It just takes cancer in one part of your body to take the whole ship down. If we love our brethren, if we understand that we are bound to them as members of the same body, then what Jesus is saying is that love should prompt us, should propel us to call wandering sinners back from their sin to repentance. And if they don't repent, and if we must excommunicate them, even then the goal is for reconciliation upon the condition of that person's repentance. And that happens sometime, and we're praying for that, for those who have been excommunicated from our church. We want them to come back to their senses and repent and come back to the church. And handling this thing, I think it helps sometimes a lot of steps here, but it helps to interact with people at every stage thinking about the best possible outcome. When pursuing wandering souls, it's extremely easy along the way to get offended or hurt or angry at someone else's sin. That's why in Galatians 6.1, Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted." We are in danger of being tempted. We need to be aware of that. So let me tell you uh, two principles that I think are helpful as you're walking through these situations with other people. Again, the first idea is to think about the best possible outcome. So to engage in every activity, no matter how hopeless it may seem, no matter how much they seem to be denying their sin, to engage in every interaction, imagining that the outcome of this conversation is going to be the best possible outcome. I am about to win back my brother by the grace of God. That shapes how you interact that. You don't go in angrily. You don't go in, um, in in the wrong kind of a spirit. You go in wooing your brother back to Christ. What should you do assuming this is going to go as well as you want it to? But the second principle that I think can be helpful is uh, what I call the five-year rule. To think about five years from now, as I'm looking back on this interaction, what will I wish for the sake of, con- of, of my conscience that I had had the courage to say? It either did go well or didn't go well, but I am so glad that in that interaction I had the courage to say this. You need to say that. But then you also need to think about the flip side. Five years from now, maybe it went well, maybe it didn't go well. Maybe this person is reconciled and now you're dealing with someone that you said some harsh words in the heat of the moment in that interaction. What will you wish you had not said? Don't say those things. Well, I've said that this first part is going to be the longest part, and I I meant it. We'll look briefly at the second and third points, one after another, that deal with the kingdom of Jesus. But what I want to leave us with before we leave that part is just the intense effort toward loving your brother back to Christ. We'll come back to that a little bit moment in the sermon. So the second point, as we get into this second idea of the kingdom of Jesus, the second point is the authority of King Jesus in verse 18. Jesus says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, I hope you remember these are the exact same words that Jesus spoke to Peter in Matthew 16, verse 19. After Peter confessed to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, when we preached on that passage a while ago, 
I talked about a few reasons for understanding that that doesn't refer to simply one man, Peter alone, or certainly not Peter's successor uh, in the Bishop of Rome in the Roman Catholic Church. That's the claim that's sometimes made. I made a few arguments against that idea then. You can go back and listen to that sermon if you want to learn more. But I want to make another argument that the keys of the kingdom, the binding and loosing that Jesus talks about that are done by these keys, cannot refer to one individual alone. And it's because there is actually a difference in what Jesus says here to what he said in Matthew 16, verse 19, although it's not easy to see the English, because it's now put in the plural rather than the singular you. Then it was you, Peter. Now it's all of you, Jesus talking to his 12 disciples. You all, what you bind on heaven will be bound, or bound on, bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, what theologians talk about as they think about these two passages are, on the one hand, the, key, the two keys of the kingdom. The, the first of all, the key of doctrine, the true preaching and teaching of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came in the flesh with a true human body, and, and that He died for us and so that we could be forgiven through uh, faith in Jesus Christ. And then, on the other hand, this key in this passage, the key of discipline. This is partially the discipline that admits people into the membership, but also the discipline that can result in the ultimate judgment of cutting off unrepentant offenders and excommunicating them from the membership of the church. Now, in both cases, when we talk about what we bind on earth will be bound in heaven, we're not talking about binding God. It's actually talking about God binding what we do. Jesus Christ, the King, possesses all authority. Again, this Verses about the authority of King Jesus. And He has given us a law. He has given us instructions about how to carry all of these things out, not only in this passage, but throughout the whole Bible. And so when we do on earth what Jesus has commanded us to do in the Holy Scriptures, then He is binding our actions, but what we do in exercising that authority, sometimes by censures like excommunication, then it is bound in heaven because God has already declared that that should be so. And we are simply making public through human pronouncements of what God has already told us to do and how He has told us to handle these things. Christ has given us a law and we are executing it because Jesus gives the church authority to His minister His kingdom. Now that's one part of the kingdom of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. That's the second point. The third point comes to the other promise of Jesus, and this is about the presence of King Jesus in verses 19 through 20. Let me read these again. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three of them are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, these verses are often taken out of context in two major ways. The first thing is it's important to understand when Jesus says that if, any, if you agree on anything in my name, that'll be granted for you. The word for thing there in anything, it's two words. The word for thing there really has more of the idea of a matter or particularly a case. It's talking about a judicial case. It's talking about a case of church discipline. So this isn't just, hey, if two or three of us can get, a, get somewhere and we can just agree in prayer on something, God's bound to do it for us. It's not that. Jesus is still talking about church discipline. This is in the context of the authority of the keys of, of, of the kingdom, of the, the key of discipline and the process of loving a brother back. The second way that this is often misinterpreted 
is that this isn't a general promise for all believers in this, in this context. He's talking about the exercise of discipline by representative elders. Now, the Holy Spirit does indeed indwell individual believers. We're told that in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. But the particular promise that Jesus is giving about his presence with his people when two or three are gathered in his name, he's talking about a formal setting. He's talking about church discipline, which is exercised by the elders of the church. His point is that even on a very small session, a very small board of elders, composed of only two or three elders, King Jesus promises us his personal presence in our midst. What this means is that King Jesus hasn't just gone to heaven and he's sort of managing things from afar, but that by his spirit, King Jesus is actively leading and guiding and ruling over his church, particularly in the exercise of the key of discipline. He hasn't abandoned us. Now, I want to be very clear. This doesn't mean that the church or the session of your church or any church court is infallible. The church can err, and the church has erred and does err. We are not infallible. But part of what this process is talking about is a whole church process. Most of this is exercised by the elders meeting formally as the session, but you also see that a lot of this is done by individual believers in these small, seemingly insignificant conversations where they're confronting fellow believers in sin. But ultimately, when it gets through it, if a decision comes down and you think it is wrong, you have the right to file a complaint, to tell us as a session, we think this is unbiblical. It was improper. You need to reconsider that decision, and we have to reconsider it. And if we still think that we were in the right in the decision that we made, you have the right to take that to the presbytery and make your complaint there for them to decide. And we can't even vote when it comes before the presbytery. Or if you are on the wrong end of receiving church discipline and you don't agree with the decision, you can again appeal that up to the presbytery or if necessary to the general assembly where other elders met as the court of Christ's church will look at those decisions and again, we can't vote on them. Other people independently will look at those decisions. That's a, a bigger part of how the whole church works. But the point is it's a whole body working together that King Jesus promises to be present in. Now, I want to close with just a couple of thoughts. I've, I've said a lot in this sermon. This is a difficult text. It's famous for a reason. It's so simple in some ways and so difficult in its execution But let me just zoom out a little bit. As we've talked about all of these things, let me zoom out to help us to see the bigger picture. The application that we should draw from this is this. Love your brothers and sisters in the church. Love your brothers and sisters in the church. In this church. I want to emphasize that part, in this church. You know, it's really a very unusual thing that we experience in our lives with so much technology where we are surrounded with reports and images and video, sometimes live-streamed, right as it's happening, about things that are happening in other places around the world. Because when, and we, think about, when we think about these big things, the things that are happening in our world, our, our minds tend to go to those things. And so when we think about the kingdom of Jesus, the glorious kingdom of Jesus, we think about the kingdom of Jesus, I think, primarily in regard to those big things that are happening elsewhere. And those things are important. Again, this morning we're praying particularly for the end of abortion in our country, in order for the sanctity of human life to be upheld. Those things are important. But if you think about someone living in Jesus' day who first heard Jesus 
talk about these things. Really, people who lived in most of history, those people living, uh, those people living at those times would know very little, if anything, about what happened beyond their own village. They might know a little bit here and there. They might hear some news from a traveler, but you'd know very little, if anything, about what happened outside your own community, your own church. And with that in mind, I think it's so, one of the things I've been meditating on this week is how remarkable it is that when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he talks about the significance of these small relationships, these small interactions, these personal relationships that we have with each other, not a theoretical church out there somewhere, but that we have with each other here in this church. One reason we prioritize church membership, and I hope you heard Brandon's um, message. If you're thinking about church membership, we have an open house coming up to talk about it in a couple of weeks. One of the reasons we prioritize church membership is because it faithfully conveys the biblical idea that we are genuinely members of one body. We have a membership in one body. We're bound to another in an organic kind of a way so that cancer in one member can take down all the members, can take down the whole body which is why it's so important to love one another in this process of calling people back from their sin. Church membership is more than a name on a piece of paper. It is a bond forged between children in the love of the Father. Now, practically, I want to mention a couple of things for you to think about. The first, first thing, I've mentioned this before. Many of you do it. If you're not doing it, I want to encourage you, stay around after the service for the after party. Uh, there is a wonderful extended after party, a conversation that goes so long. I'm usually the last person to leave, and some of you say, you really squeeze out, you, you shut the place down, you know, turn out the lights uh, to leave, you know. Um, that's wonderful. Stay with your fellow believers, talk to them. I know those small talk conversations don't feel meaningful all the time, but understand, it's those small interactions that forge real relationships that we have with one another already. We're already related by virtue of being members of the same church. This is an opportunity to meet someone who is a fellow member in the body of Christ or to catch up with someone who uh, you haven't maybe caught up for a while. But beyond that, consider ways to have people into your home. Invite people into your home for a meal. It doesn't need to be fancy. We've talked sometimes, uh, there's a book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, about very ordinary hospitality of just very simple food. The point is to get together, not to show off how well you can host a dinner party. Third thing is pray for people during the week. Pray for them. Take the conversations you have here and, and take that as prayer requests for the week. Call and text people to encourage them. Ask them how you can pray proactively. Don't wait for them to tell you. Go ask them. What can I be praying for you? And then fourth and finally from this passage, if needed, go to your brother. If there's someone who sinned against you and it's a serious issue, you're not making a mountain out of a molehill, go to your brother alone. Resist every temptation to gossip. If need be, bring in witnesses. If need be, tell it to the church in a formal charge, in a judicial setting before the elders. But resist every other temptation to gossip along the way, but go to your brother to call your brother back. This is about love for our fellow believers, the love of the Father for His children. And this is about how the kingdom of Jesus Christ shines forth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us Jesus Christ and him crucified. We pray that in this church that we would be a group of people who are not just congregated in one area, but we would act in one another's lives as members of a single body where we feel that connection 
that relationship, that bonding that is between us, that is forged in your love and the body of your son, Jesus Christ, who is our head. We pray that you would encourage one another in the way that we call people back from sin. And we pray that you would do this all for the glory of Jesus Christ as he builds his kingdom in his church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.